Welcome, everybody. It is the last week of benchmark number one, so you may be excited about that. You may may not be. I, I don't know. It's been a lot of information, a lot of stuff going on, talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Probably going to have to review it if you want to retain all of it, but just one more. Just one more quick session, and we'll be done. We're going to be talking about having a heart for God, kind of the so what of all of these attribute, those attributes of God that we talked about last week, is how do we respond to them in worship and in purity. Those are going to be the two big sections that we talk about this week. Let me find my clicker. Um, really quick, before we get rolling, I would love it if at your table you could talk about what you've gleaned thus far from this course and how you have been using it in your everyday life. What have you been getting out of Benchmark and how have you been using it in your everyday life? All right. I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure some of you were thinking, uh, hold on, I haven't really thought about what all we've gone over. I've just been worried about bringing more in. Um, there's been a whole bunch. All of these are online if you want to listen to them again. All of the PDFs for the slides are online if you want to go and get those. They're just on at watermark.org and then click on media. You can search benchmark and all six will be there. Uh, the sixth one, today's, will be there sometime later tomorrow, maybe uh, the day after, but should be up by the end of the week if you ever want to go back and look at any of those or go back and get the slides if you haven't already. Last week, talked about the attributes of God, what are the qualities of God that he has alone, his eternality, his, um, how he, all of these different qualities about God, his omnipresence, how he's everywhere, and talked about some of the qualities of God that we are called to strive after, like his holiness, being holy like God is holy, and really came down to this one brief statement, our God is good, a good and great father who is in heaven. That's kind of where we landed. We talked about earlier the Trinity, what is God like, and then we talked about who he is, his characteristics, talked about some of his names and how that tells us more about who God is. And today, we're really going to be talking about how do we respond to who God is as the almighty, eternal, all-knowing, all-loving God. And in one word, that is worship. But that is a loaded, loaded word. When I say worship, I would be shocked if each one of you didn't have a little bit of a different idea of what worship is. So not to jump to the groups too quickly again, but I want everyone, each one of you, at your tables, or if you want to look at another table and say, hey, this is what I think, go ahead. Um, but I want you to answer this question, what is worship? I want each person at your table to have a chance to do this. You may remember the first week I was talking about how we all have embedded beliefs and evaluated beliefs. Embedded beliefs are beliefs that we just hold. We don't really know why, but we, it's kind of what we think. Evaluated beliefs are those beliefs that are then tested and tried and weighed and said, okay, I've tried this, I have put something up against this, and this proves true. So when I ask what is worship, this is when you're going to say probably an embedded belief, maybe a little bit evaluated, but you're going to say something, and then as we work through tonight, you may be able to evaluate that and come to a more biblical, simpler definition of what worship is. So real quick at your tables, I'll give you all about five or six minutes to for each person to answer what is worship. Not five or six minutes, each individual. As a table. All right. So, does everyone feel like they have a general idea of what they think worship is? Maybe a couple different answers. Maybe some things that you were saying, oh yeah, I think that too. Or I, I had forgotten about that. Well, a lot of people, when they think of worship, they think of a couple of actions. They, they might say praise. That might be... Music, it might be singing, it may be some form of declaration to God. You might say scripture reading, reading the Bible, sitting down and spending time with the Word of God. That is an act of worship. Teaching on Sunday mornings. If I'm coming to church, if I'm at Watermark and Todd is teaching me, 
That can be a worshipful event where the Holy Spirit can grab my heart and I can learn something and be drawn to action or drawn closer to God. Uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, maybe actions you've heard called sacraments. Taking, being baptized um, and uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper, those things that God said or Jesus said while on earth, do these things. Uh, giving, giving an offering is an act of worship. Um, or prayers. Praying to God is a worshipful event. All, we see all of these actions in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New, as events that we do to worship God. Now, most people, when they think of worship, they'll immediately go to what happens on Sunday morning. What do we do on Sundays? We come, we sing, we pray, we get a little bit of teaching, we hang out with each other, we fellowship, and go eat lunch with a bunch of people and go home. Um, but you kind of have all these little bubbles, if you will, of all these little targets that you're shooting at. Worship is preaching, well, and it's also prayer, and it's also singing. It's all these different parts that are kind of scattered around. And I'm going to say that while these are worshipful acts, these are things that worship does. This may not exactly be worship in a broad sense. These are ways that a worshipful life works itself out in these ways. Let me show you another diagram. A life of worship is a unified whole thing where you are living by the power of the Holy Spirit directed towards God in every action, and that leads to all those little actions of worship. That worship is more of a lifestyle than it is a particular event that happens in a particular place at a particular time. See, I think our definition of worship or idea of worship may be a little bit too narrow. It's not just specific music. It's not a specific genre or specific style, it can be a broad range of different kinds of music. And it's not just restricted to music. If I told you, hey, I'm going to go worship, would you like to come? Most of our minds would immediately run to music. You may say, well, I don't sing well. Or, yeah, what kind of music is it? Um, that's, music is the number one way that most churches are evaluated. Number one. One of our number one feedbacks here is that our music is too loud at Watermark. <laughs> number one. Um, too loud, but it's a big, it's a big room. You've got to fill it all with sound. You may think it's specific days that we worship on Sunday, or maybe your church growing up met also on a Wednesday or a Tuesday. Or for me, I went to church on Sunday, went to youth group on Tuesday, had a small group on Thursday, and then did it all over again. Those were my times to worship throughout the week. We may think it's in specific places. I have to go to church to worship. I have to be with these people in order to worship. I'm going to say it's too narrow. True worship, I think the best verse you can find for that is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. True and proper worship is offering your life to to God. Now, are people the only ones who worship? Are humans the only ones who worship God? No. Angels worship God. They proclaim things about Him. They sing His praises. Psalm 19 says that the skies declare the works of the Lord. So in some ways, creation also praises God. But I want to talk about some, well, first, sorry, got ahead of myself. First, I have a quote that will probably help you understand this idea of a life of worship. But we do worship. We are worshiping, in a sense, alongside angels and alongside of creation. It's not just this specific day, time, place, and thing. This is a quote from Louis Giglio from his book, Air I Breathe. Worship is our response to what we value most. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. 
At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne, and whatever or whomever is on that throne is what is of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. So think about that. I'm going to go back to the first part. Where is your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance? Where is that in your life? If if the only worship that you do actively during the week is a Sunday morning sitting in a pew singing certain songs, then that is a small, small amount of worship if you're thinking about your entire week or entire life. That if you say, in my life right now, what am I giving most of my energy to what am I living my life as a, as Romans would say, a sacrifice to? That is what you are worshiping. If we're going to put God on that throne, that means that He would demand our time, our affection, our allegiance, and our energy, which is a big, big thing. So, getting back to this idea of what is our heart in worship, I got a little bit ahead of myself, and I was talking about how humans are not the only ones who worship. But when humans are commanded to worship people, those who are made in the image of God, there are three specific words that are used for human worship, not for creation declaring God. These aren't ways that angels worship God in Scripture. These are just three words that are used to describe what our worship looks like, what a lifestyle of worship looks like. The first one is submission. Submission to God is the first way we worship. In, in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word histahava, which is a mouthful. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word proskuneo, which is where we get our word to prostrate ourselves, to bow down. Back in those days, bowing down wasn't just a formality. It was an actual sign of showing that your life could belong to someone else. If I am in a place where I feel the need to carry a sword by my side at all times, that my life might be at risk. If I bow in front of somebody, put my knees on the ground, put my head down and expose my neck, I am saying I am at your mercy. That I am putting my life in your hands. That at this point, I can't get up and protect myself. You have clear access to take me out. My life is yours. I am bowing down and submitting to you. One great example of this is in Judges seven fifteen, when Gideon, one of the judges, was about to go to war against the Midianites, and someone comes, someone comes and interprets a dream he has and say, this day God has given into your hands the Midianites. And Gideon's response is when he heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He submitted himself to God. Now, a simple way to remember this would just be to submit is to turn yourself over to God, to align yourself with him. If you're thinking about salvation, we didn't come to God on our own terms. We came to God on his terms, by grace, through faith. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, shouldn't we submit to his will? Because he's going to accomplish it. But if we submit to it and align, align ourselves with it in an act of worship, then we can really see the true beauty of what God is doing in the world and take part in it. Have you ever thought about that? We are absolutely fallen, broken people. And a God who could do anything with just a word said, I want to use you to accomplish my will. I want to do it through you. And we are so willing to say, to talk about our faults and say, I'm not worthy and no, not me. But God came down and said, I want to use you to do my will. And all we have to do is submit. Submission is a big, big deal. Especially if you're thinking about marriage, submission becomes a real hot-button topic. When you say women are to submit to their husband, we have this idea that submission means just 
going along with it. And if it's bad or if it's good, no matter what, you just say yes and you just take it. It's not what it is. Submission, you're giving yourself over to a God who at his very core is love. And he's coming to you and he's redeeming you. That to submit to that kind of leadership is ultimate life-giving. And you think about Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives and give, your, give yourself up for them, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. If someone is giving them their life to serve you in leadership, because leadership is service. Jesus came not to serve but to be served. That's a leadership any one of us would follow, that I'm following someone who would actively give up their life for me. That's a leadership anyone could submit to. And God showed us that when he gave his son on the cross to die for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're just asked to submit and worship to that. Submission is the first word. Second word is obedience. There is no separation in the Bible between faith and obedience. They're always together. James says faith without works is dead. It's like a body without breath in it. So think about that. Faith is like a body, but you can't tell if it's alive. If you have faith, you have this, but you're not doing anything. You're not obeying God. You have this corpse of a faith. But response to God in obedience brings life into that body, brings life into that faith, vitalizes it. In the Old Testament... This is the word avad, New Testament, the word lateo, and they just mean to serve. To obey is to serve. Hebrews 5.9, this is talking about Jesus Christ. And by being perfected in this way, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. At one point in the Gospels, I'm blanking on exactly where it is, Jesus says, you call me Lord, then follow me. Kind of this idea of, hey, you call me Lord, but you're not doing what I command. Either you need to start doing what I command or stop calling me Lord, because there's a disconnect between the two. If you're going to call me Lord, then you need to pick up your cross and follow him. Obedience, in a simple way, you're just doing what God asks of you. Think about the attributes of God. All-knowing. Nothing you do surprises Him. He's eternal. He knows what's going to happen in the future as much as He knows what's happened in the past. And He loves you. So if He gives a command where He knows that there might be consequences, is it not in our best interest to obey an all-loving God? To obey a God who cares about us, who loves us, and can see where the end of our choices might lead us. It makes sense that we'd obey him. It doesn't, it may not at the time. There may be a command to forgive someone, for instance, and you may say, I don't want to do that. There may be a command, like James 5, 16, to confess your sins to one another. You say, I confess my sins to God. I don't really want to talk to my friends, my spouse about this. I'll just keep this between me and God. And the word says, no, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Following a command like that is, well, that's a deep, dark path, and I don't, I don't know about that. But ultimately, the commands in, in the word of God aren't to rip you off. They aren't to make you feel bad about yourself and have a bad time there to fill you up. I, I'm trying to forget um, the phrase Todd used on Sunday. God's not trying to rip you off. He's trying to um, give you life more or less. I wish I could remember it because it's so catchy and it's so e- it should be so easy to remember. I forgot it. Um, but obedience, just doing what God asks you. Submission, giving your life over to God. Obedience, doing what he asks you. And the third one is remembering. Now, this one may seem a little odd, remembering. That's a bit of a curveball for worship. What do you mean, remember? Remember what? It just means to look back. To look back. It is used a ton of times in the Old Testament. 
and a ton of times in the New Testament to remember the covenant, remember what God has done. Revelation 3, 3, Therefore, remember what you have seen and heard and obey it and repent. Remember what you have seen and heard. Just kind of lock into that phrase. Remember what you have seen and heard. When in the Old Testament, God said, remember to his people. Hey, remember, remember. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt. Remember when you were in the wilderness and I gave you bread. Remember these acts that I've done for you. Because when you remember what God has done, you are reminded that he is faithful to you, that he upholds his promises, he keeps his promises, and it drives you forward to obedience and repentance. Think about all those times when God says, I will remember your sins no more. That I'm not going to look back at the evil that you've done. I'm going to put that out of my mind. You remember what all the good that I have have done so you can continue to follow me. There are a couple of chapters in the Old Testament that just devote themselves to giving a history of Israel. Hey, here's what happened. You see it, I mean, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, um, each towards the end. I think it's 2nd Kings 17. I really think I might be wrong about that. But uh, I, I believe it's 2nd Kings 17. tells a whole story of Israel. And Ezra, when the people of Israel come back from exile, one of the first things they do is they say, hey, this is what happened to Israel. This is your history. Remember. Matthew, the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of John. Hey, you remember that prophecy? Do you remember that prophecy? Well, it's being fulfilled now. The book of Hebrews says the, everyone in the, all the Old Testament figures are there as an example for us, that we can remember them, see God's good works, and live in faith. Remembrance is not a nostalgic look backwards, like, oh man, it was so much better then. That's not what we mean. We mean a look to the past that drives a present and future keeping of the covenants with God. Looking to the past and being reminded that God keeps his covenants and keeps his promises with us. And that drives us to action. Because you see a faithful God who is faithful to us despite our faithlessness. That when we run from God, he is faithful to us. All of these things, to remember, to submit, and obey, they are the things that are at the heart of what worship is. A worshipful lifestyle that works itself out in worshipful actions, like praise. You remember who God is, what he has done. You, uh, you submit to who he is. You obey him because you're praising him for who he is. Sing to God a new song. Psalms 96.1. Lift up your voice. I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk through each one of these actions, these worshipful doings, and I want you to quickly make a note about how each one of these has some part in remembering who God is, remembering what he's done, and submitting to him and obeying him. So you can see how these are worshipful actions. And I think when we do this, and we talk about how a full lifestyle of worship that drives towards these actions, that each one of these becomes increasingly more beneficial and more meaningful. They're not just something we do once a week or twice a week, but something we do as an overflow of our love for God and are pointing ourselves towards God. So praise. I talked over that one really briefly. Scripture reading reading the Bible, spending time in the Word. How is that an act of obedience? How is that an act of remembrance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. 
Absolutely. Think about how reading the Bible, it, it could be easy to think about how it's a remembrance because you're looking at what the history of what God has done. It's easy to think about how it might be an act of obedience because sometimes it's not so easy to get in the Word, to spend time in it. And we have busy lives. Oh gosh, okay, well I guess I'm going to go read the Bible. It can be a conscious act of obedience a lot of times. How might it be an act of submission? Yeah. The proverbial Egypt going back into slavery and to sin. But also think, that's great. Maybe also you're submitting yourself to what it would say, that this is the authoritative word of God, and I am coming to it to gain wisdom in all acts of faith and devotion to learn about God and who he is. Yeah, I I heard a great quote that you don't need to um, you don't need to work through the Bible. You need to let the Bible work through you. That it's not as much about me just getting through it. It's about what it says penetrating me and changing me. How about teaching, showing up on a Sunday morning and listening to Todd. Todd's teaching, learning from it, and then. Learning is often an active choice. You don't just show up and get something if you're sitting there on Twitter or Facebook or drawing doodles. How is teaching an active... Teaching, as in receiving teaching, but maybe also teaching others. Because remember, none of these acts are things that just someone else does and we receive. That each one of these worshipful acts in Scripture is something that all of us do. We all praise, we all read the Bible, we all teach. It's an act of submission maybe because you're listening to someone else. You are trusting in in them that they have submitted themselves to the Word of God. You're submitting yourself to the authority that God has established in the church. If you're going out and teaching someone else you're submitting to the holy spirit that he would speak through you and that this just isn't you and your words and your teaching but this is the word of god you're obeying god and that you are making disciples great commission matthew 28 19 through 20 go, go therefore and make disciples teaching them or baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit teaching them everything i have taught you that we all teach as we make disciples Baptism in the Lord's Supper. You know, thinking about how we submit ourselves to that, that these, are, these aren't just practices that we do, but they are larger signs. Matthew 28, we're commanded to baptize one another in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Doing everything He taught us to do. He taught His disciples in Matthew 26 about the Lord's Supper. Take this wine in remembrance of my blood. Eat this bread in remembrance of my body that was broken for you. That each one of those are not just an action. It's an, inward, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Praise is an outward sign, a vocal sign of an inward love for God, an inward adoration. Scripture reading is sitting down. It's an inward sign of submitting to God. All of these are outward expressions of inward realities. Giving an offering. <laughs> it's not hard to think about how that's a submission to God or an obedience because it's tough. Old Testament and New, though, when it talks about giving, in the Old Testament, it's talking about giving money to build the tabernacle of God, and it says only those who are willing give. Corinthians talks about give as you are willing because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That if it, if it really pains you and troubles in your heart to give money, it may be a sign of an over-attachment to money. 
that that's something that God has provided for you, for you to steward well. And if giving is a difficult thing, yet it's something that we're asked to do willingly and cheerfully. Maybe a sign of an over-affection towards money. Prayers, another worship, outward sign of inward reality, knowing that God hears us when we pray. Submitting to God that he would hear us and giving our requests to him. You know, Philippians where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and thanksgiving, submit your requests to the Lord. Man, (laughs) me letting go of stuff that really is bugging me and saying, God, you've got it. But if I know he's sovereign, I know he's in control, then it's easy for me to let go and say, Hey, you can do this better than I ever could. And that relieves me of so much pressure and so much anxiety. Think about these, those three words in some tricky passages sometimes to read through, like Colossians 3.23, whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord, not for people. Whatever you're doing, if you're doing yard work, if you're hanging out with friends, if you're going to the grocery store, whatever you're doing, do it as to the Lord. That if my heart is, I am remembering who God is, I'm submitted to him, and I'm going to obey him. It's a lifestyle of doing everything to God. Hey, how does a Christian work? They do their work well, because they're not doing it for man, they're doing it for God. I think a lot of times we think that whatever we're passionate about in work and in our jobs, it can never be difficult. We always have to love it. But whenever the Bible talks about work, it says, hey, just do it joyfully for God and not for men. God's given you work to enjoy. Ecclesiastes says, hey, man should just be happy every day. To not seek vanities. Be happy and enjoy your work because it's a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether I'm eating or drinking, what? Even the, the things that are necessary for you to live, we all have to eat, we all have to drink, in the necessities and in everything else around us, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all in a state of worship, a heart of worship. If you want to summarize worship, it's easy to do it this way. Worship is a lifestyle of full devotion to God. Worship is a lifestyle of full devotion to God. That also begs the question, is my lifestyle fully devoted to God? Is your lifestyle fully devoted to God? Now we're all going to fall down. We're all going to mess up. All of our lives, will we're not going to be perfect and do everything to God, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep striving towards it. You know? Uh, I think sometimes we just say, well, we all screw up, so we take that as a license to give up at times, to lose heart. When I think about losing heart, I think of a scene in Braveheart where the leader of the Scots, Robert the Bruce, he's kind of following on the heels of this guy named William Wallace who's leading a revolution for his people, fighting for the freedom of the Scots against the British. William Wallace is in the heat of battle, And he decides, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to take out the king right now and end the war. And he charges towards him, and the king sends out one of his guard. And he and William Wallace start fighting, and they fall on the ground, fall off their horses, and they start wrestling. And Wallace tears off the helmet of this guy and sees it's Robert the Bruce, the guy who is supposed to be the leader of the Scots, his brother. And when Robert goes back home, after this betrayal that led to the desolation of the Scots. After this, he goes home and his father consoles him and says, hey, all men lose heart. All men betray. His response is, but I don't want to lose heart. Most people, when they watch that movie, they want to be like the man, William Wallace, who led a revolution, who was courageous, who had undying passion for a cause. But most people relate 
to the man who lost heart and the man who betrayed. Sometimes we rationalize that by saying all people do it. But we shouldn't want to. If your heart is fully devoted to God, if you fall down, you pick yourself up and you keep going. You don't sit there and say, well, I messed up. Our guilt was nailed to the cross. Our shame was nailed to the cross. We keep chasing after God. We don't sit there and wallow, so to speak. And we don't rationalize what we did. We accept what we did is wrong. We confess to God. We repent, which are two different things, confession and repentance. Proverbs 28, 13, he who hides his sin comes to ruin. But he who confesses and renounces it finds mercy. Confession is telling, renouncing is turning away from it and keep chasing after God. 28.13 Worship is a lifestyle of full devotion to God. I think we can say that that lifestyle should be noted by purity. So if worship is a life pointed towards God, that life should be marked by purity. Remember when we were talking about holiness last week? And in Leviticus and in 1 Peter... God says, be holy as I am holy. That's a big call. God's perfect. And he's saying, come on, let's go. Your seminary word of the day for that is sanctification. The process of being sanctified. And if I was going to graph it, okay, you're here. or I'll put it lower. You are sinful. Christ comes into your life. You are justified. You are made right. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now enables you to follow God. He guides you in the Word, and you kind of start this awkward climb up. And sometimes you plateau, and sometimes you may go back down, and then you climb back up. It's this cooperation with God where He's saying, come on, let's go. Obey. Remember. Submit. And sometimes we fall, but He's saying, look, Philippians 1.6, I am going to finish the good work I started in you. And so we slowly grow in our lives. And then when we pass away, we may be at some point. But ultimately, when Christ comes back, 1 Corinthians 15, we will be made like him. That's when we are glorified and we are made perfect, that Christ does complete that work. But in our life, it's going to be kind of a bumpy road up being sanctified, but it's all chasing after this idea of purity. Charles Spurgeon talks a lot about holiness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning and the foundation for all true religion. Without a solemn awe and reverence, I think if you were going to describe what the fear of the Lord is, I'd say awe and reverence, not terror. That's a different word in, in the original languages for like Goosebump, fear, you know, paralyzing fear. Those are different words. This is a word that means awe and reverence. Without an awe and reverence of God, there is no foothold for the more brilliant virtues. He whose soul does not worship will never live in holiness. If your life is not marked by pointing yourself on a path towards God, holiness will be all but unattainable. It's only by the work of the Spirit in our lives that we can pursue that. Leviticus twenty twenty six. I just mentioned this. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Now, we aren't Israel. I feel fairly comfortable saying everyone in here is a Gentile who's been brought into the church. There may be some people in here who are um, ethnic Israel. That's great. Love that you're here. But most people in here are probably Gentiles. And God's saying to Israel in that passage, look, I've set you apart. You're supposed to be different in every way of your life. One of the most unique things about the faith of Israel was that it was a complete lifestyle change. Most gods just demanded sacrifices or that you do certain things on certain holidays those who follow God, lives, their lives look totally different. And this often made the people around them really upset and really angry. 
Oh, you think you're better than us? You think you're different? Oh, they are. So, they look at what they're doing. It's so different. We don't like that because it's condemning what we're doing. Don't like it. New Testament's not too much different. First Peter says you are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are called out. You are set apart. And what sets you apart is your life should be totally different than those around you. You should have people saying, hey, why do you do this? Hey, why, why is there joy in your life like that? Hey, why do you pray? Why are you always reading your Bible? Why, why does everything you do look different? And that may create curiosity. It may make some people upset. They may say, you think you're better than me, something like that. If your heart's really been infiltrated by the gospel, you aren't exalted, you're humbled. You say, no, it's not because I'm better than you. It's because God saw fit to come down and save a sinner like me. And I'm fully aware of my faults, fully aware. It's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what God's done in me that I'm different. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is in a passage where he's talking about the sexual immorality of those in, the people in Corinth. Um, there was at this time a particular temple that you worshipped in by sleeping with prostitutes. And right, right after this, he said, Hey, don't you know that when you sleep with a prostitute, you're marrying your body to them? That sexual immorality is not just a sin against God, it's a sin against your own body. He goes on to talk about marriage and singleness. Um, but he's saying, look, you're, he's starting off by saying, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Ephesians said, says this too. That's a big deal. I mean, think about the tabernacle how holy that was where the, the presence of God was in, on the tabernacle. And then the temple and how massive that was. Huge. It was the place where God was worshipped. Then in Jeremiah, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people where I will dwell with them. I will write my law on their hearts. So now the temple is in you where the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> That's convicting to me, thinking about some of the things that I do. If my temple is the Holy Spirit, hey, where am I taking my temple? What am I doing with my temple? Don't you know you've been bought with a price, the ultimate price? It was costly. What Jesus did was costly to redeem you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies everywhere you're going. I don't think anyone in here can get outside of their bodies with their lives. Um, unless you figured out something that I've never heard of. But that is a lifestyle. It's your body. It is pursuing holiness. So here, discussion with your table. In what specific ways are we to be holy? Set apart from everyone else. If you have scripture to back this up, that's ideal. But if you don't, it's okay. It's all right. What specific ways? Not just generalities. What specific tangible things in your life are we supposed to be set apart in? How will your life set you apart from those who do not know God? How should it or how does it presently? All right. I, I tell you what, when I wrote this question, uh, it was very convicting for me personally, thinking about how I am certain areas of li- my life where I'm unwilling to or just didn't even realize that I wasn't considering what God may have wanted. Um, yes, conviction, if some of you are there right now, it hurts, but it's a good thing because it drives you to action. You remember when we talked about Isaiah, when he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips, and then God atoned for his sin and sent him to do good work. Remember, we have been atoned for. And that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin so that we can see it in our lives and progress towards purity. It's not a fun place to be, but it's a great place to be because it's what drives you further. 
toward, or closer to God. Here's a couple areas that I just jotted down really quickly where we can pursue holiness in our lives, in love or in marriage. How we can be pure in our marriage to someone, or if you're single, how can you be pure outside of marriage or in love? How does our love coming from a Trinitarian God look different than everyone else's conception of love as something that gives happiness or something where I get something from someone? What about the way we talk? I'm not saying you have to be only speaking in Bible verses, but your, your words should be flavored with grace and love. The way you parent should be a, a way that you try to be holy and try to be like God as He is our Father. The way we forgive people. How many times should we forgive somebody? What, 70 times 7, which 7 is the number of completion. 70 times 7, it's not a Jesus saying, hey, hope you remember your multiplication charts because that's 490. Um, it's not, he's, not, he's not saying that. He's just saying there is a vast number that, that's beyond what we would even keep record of. You're keeping record up to 490 and then not forgiving. That's not the heart of the passage. Um, our schedule. Now, what does schedule have to do? God has designed a pattern of rest and of labor in our lives, that we run for a while and then we rest. There's a time when you rest and you just turn your brain off. When you're not a human doing, you become just a human being. You're not running all the time. You rest, you recharge. Our worship, which we've talked about, our beliefs, the way we handle money, the way we steward what we have, Yes, some people, I'm not saying that you that having more money is a bad thing and it's good to have less money. I think that sometimes comes out in the church and I don't think that's, necess- I don't think that's true. I don't think it's, um, I think some people are given more and some people are given less. But if you look at the example of something like Ezekiel, or Ezekiel, Exodus 16, when God sends manna from heaven and he tells everyone, hey, collect an omer. It's like three liters of bread. Some people collect more and some people collect less. But the ones who have more use what God's entrusted them with, steward it well to serve those who have less. That we've been given something that helps us clothe ourselves, feed ourselves, shelter ourselves, but also we have some that we can use to serve God and serve others. Where are you seeking entertainment? It's another way we could be set apart things we watch, the things we listen to. Now, in some ways, when I talk about holiness, a lot of people think of it like two doors. It is, you're, in a way. You're either thinking holiness or not holiness. But a lot of people look at it like this. Holiness, yeah, it's godly, but it's miserable. Like, it's not fun at all. Like, now, we're laughing, but a lot of people would say, uh, being a Christian, that's no fun. It just means this, 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 and this, and that's not a great time. And impurity is sinful and evil, but it's kind of fun. There may be some rewards there. You know, sin gives to you a little bit at first, and it might be fun or exciting, but after a while, you start giving to it just to keep it around, and you become addicted, and you give yourself away to it. That may seem great at first, but it's not going to be that. It's, It's vain. It's deceitful. Some people look at it that way, but I have another quote here from our good smiling buddy, Charles Spurgeon. I would sooner be holy than happy if the two things could be divorced. Were it possible for a man always to sorrow and yet be pure, I would choose the sorrow if I might win the purity. For to be free from the power of sin, to be made to love holiness is true happiness. Remember when when I said when we were talking about the Trinity, that the very contours of reality were made by God, whose very core is love, self-giving love, by a holy God. And when we are redeemed to Him, and we can be made holy and pure and love others and really live in a world as God intended us to live in it, we are moving right along the river of how things work. And there's happiness there. Every other way you live your life that people say, hey, this is how you get happy. This is how you 
buy happiness. This is who you find to get happiness. This is what you, you know, fill in the blank. That's not going to give it. Living with God, seeking purity, there is true happiness. It's a misnomer and a mistake to think that that holiness is somehow miserable and I have to sit in a dark, quiet stone room like I'm a nun or a priest and just sit there quietly all day. It's not what it means. It's a full life. Uh, I already had that one up. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17. It talks about who Christ is and what he's done for us and his supremacy. And it says, therefore, get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. And if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out the time of your temporary residence here in reverence. Holiness is an active movement and a living out of that worshipful heart. That's where we're going. Not out of ignorance. Denying those impure thoughts which we used to live but it's a joyful moving forward now there's a temptation when i'm talking about impurity where you just say okay drew tell me what i have to do okay what do i need to do give me some action steps here give me some bullet points things that i can do every day give me a list of boxes to check or something i need to know what to do hey what do i do now i'm going to say hold on slow down a little bit Because as soon as you say, what do I have to do now? You're getting back towards moralism. You're going back towards the law. That you're saying, I need a, a, a list of things that I need to do. I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to listen to the sermon and take notes. I need to sing all the songs, even though I sing poorly. Or if you sing poorly, mouth all the songs so everyone thinks I'm singing. Um, I used to do that. Um, yep, confession time. I need to go to youth group. I need to tithe this much, no more, no less. You have, a, you have a moralist checklist. You're saying, I need to go back to get some guidelines. In Galatians, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, how quickly have you deserted the grace that's been given to you? Why are you running back to the law? Why are you going back? And these people actually were going back to the law. They were going back to their Jewish roots, but... Why would you go back to just checking boxes now that you live in grace? And I know it kind of runs against the grain of our, I need to do something. Give me some steps. I need to accomplish something. Our Americanness of just, ah, I need to do. Let, give me some steps. But a life that's lived in grace and joy is a free life. It's for freedom that Christ set us free, that you're pointed towards God and you can joyfully live life towards him. Now, it will work out itself in some very similar ways as we come together for corporate worship together, but individually, it may look very different. Your prayer life may look really different from the person next to you. I enjoy going out in nature, getting alone, and writing down my prayers in a journal. That helps me from getting my mind distracted. I know people who like to get up in the morning with a cup of coffee and just pray for about 30 minutes. Some people may say, hey, there's, a, and this, this, this is helpful. You need to pray according to Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication when you're asking God for something. And that can help you pray, but you don't have to Follow that every single time. Your prayers may look different. You may look like the psalmist and not feel like adoring God and you saying, God, how long am I going to be suffering here? But prayer is a, a pointing your heart to God where you are in open communication with him. It's like calling someone on the phone and then just letting it sit there so at any time you can just pick it up and talk to him. You don't have to work through someone else. You don't have to wait for him to pick up. There's an open communication. If I'm driving down the highway and there's someone on the side of the road, 
and the Spirit pushes me to say, hey, go talk to them. Or someone's asking for money. Hey, Spirit says, hey, offer to go get them a meal, buy them some food and come back. That it's not, well, that's not on my list of things I'm supposed to do. It's, yeah, of course. Sure, I will, I will joyfully do that. I'm going to live my life for God. And that may look, that's going to look different every day. And it's not just going to be a bunch of check boxes so I can get back to my normal routine. It's a guides your routine. Holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond it. Holiness affects the heart. If you want to look at a real difference between the heart and the actions, go read the Sermon on the Mount. Holiness respects the motive. Hey, why am I doing this? It's not just do it because someone told you, why am I doing this? Holiness regards the whole nature of man. A moral man does not do wrong in act. A holy man hates the thought of doing wrong. I would never even go back there. Have you ever thought about that? When you think about just not doing a sin, I'm just not going to do it. All you think about is not doing it. You're not living in any other like realm of your life fully. You're not like running towards God. You're just thinking about not doing that. No, no, no to that. You're not thinking about, hey, I, I have a full life where I'm running towards Christ. I'm not even going to think about this. I'm going to focus on God. This comes from, oh, this is, I love this passage. This comes from Colossians 2 and goes into Colossians 3. It's pretty long, so bear with me. If you have died to Christ, to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to them as though you lived in the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't dance. Don't listen to this music. Don't ask that question. Think of all the don'ts. You just don't, 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 don't. These are all destined to perish with use, founded as though they are on human commands and teachings. Now, some of the don'ts are good to know, hey, these are things I'm not supposed to do. But it's saying you don't focus on just the do not list. As long as I didn't do that, I'm, I'm good today. You don't focus on that. Even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and humility achieved by an unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value, they, re- they in reality result in a fleshly indulgence. Think about that. When you're saying, I don't do all these sins, it ultimately kind of puffs you up and makes you arrogant. You're like, well, I don't struggle with that. I don't do that. It's giving you some sort of fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, Galatians 2.20, have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. So put to death whatever your nature belongs to the earth. Put to death sexual immorality, Put to death impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. You're just done with those. I'm not even going to acknowledge those things. I'm done. I'm moving on. Those things are dead. They were, they're buried. They're with that old man. I've put on the new man. Christ has given me the new man. And I'm moving forward. Because of this things, these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You also lived your lives in this way at one time when you used to live among them. But now put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've been put off the old man with its practices and have been clothed with a new man that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Don't keep your eyes down focusing on what I'm not supposed to do. Look towards Christ and say, hey, it is kind of the cheesy, but what, what should I do? Christ is my example. What has he done? It's even a little bigger than the what would Jesus do. It's, hey, what does the Holy Spirit want me to do here? I'm, I'm moving forwards. I, my eyes are focused on Christ. I'm move, that's what I'm going towards. I, don't even, I can't even think about those other things. Those dead sins. I've put those to death. 1 John 2, 5-6 through 6, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
Really what I'm talking about is abiding in Christ. You're focused on him. You're concerned with how the Holy Spirit is moving. You are sensitive. In a lot of ways, we're kind of like ships, sailboats. The Holy Spirit is described as a breath or a wind. Ruah, the Hebrew word, means a wind. Spirit is a wind. We just have to raise our sails and be willing to go where the wind is blowing, being sensitive to him, abiding in Christ, knowing what Christ commanded, what he taught, and following his example. If you lack purity, a lack in purity is always a spiritual issue. Just think about it. We're saying worship is a lifestyle of devotion to God that pursues purity. If I don't have purity, it's because my worship is off somewhere. I'm not worshiping God in a particular way or not recognizing God in an area of my life. That you ne- when someone, If someone's not a believer, you don't say, hey, you need to do this differently and this differently and this differently because it's not an action problem. It's a spiritual problem. There's something below the surface. We're, we're, God is not after behavioral modification. He's after life change. What's your life to be different, not just modified? I don't do the same things I used to do. Well, that's true, but it's because I'm different because of what God has done. You don't have to clean up before you come to Christ. You come to Christ, and then when you focus on Him in correct and proper worship, true worship, as Romans 12 says, that you move towards Him with the help of the Holy Spirit, and that proper worship drives that movement towards purity. If I'm going to put it all together, all of what we've said today, A life devoted to properly worshiping God leads to a life of purity. And that's where the fullest life is. That's where true happiness is. True joy that doesn't fail. In the pure life. That is the last takeaway for this section of Benchmark talked about a whole lot. We've talked about how God reveals himself to us. We've talked about how to study the Bible week two. Hey, how do we, how do we get into this revelation of God? We've talked about the Trinity. What is it? How do we understand it? How, and what areas can we put our arms around it? And what areas is it a mystery? In week four, we talked about how does that love of the Trinity, how does that change everything? How are our lives totally different because of the Trinity? Last week we talked about the attributes of God. God is our good and great Father who is in heaven. And this week we end with, hey, properly worship God in a life of purity. Next semester, um, you know, this is our book now. And by the way, this is great. If you haven't gotten into this, or if you have a little bit, this is this simply, very easily walks through everything we've talked about in a very simple way. If you want to wait a little while and kind of let it all sink in and debrief a little bit and then come back to this to say, okay, yes, those are the simple, tangible takeaways. This is great for that. In the fall, we'll be using this. It looks exactly the same except for it's a different color, this little book. Hero who, who restores is what it's called. We're going to be talking about humanity. Hey, what, what are people really like? Why are people here? What is our purpose? We're going to be talk about that whole Sabbath rest, what a, a life, an ordered life can look like. We're going to talk about Satan and sin. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare, what that looks like, what demons really can and can't do. There's not a demon behind every rock. Demons don't make you do evil, but they can tempt you towards it. And then we're going to really talk about Jesus Christ. We're going to spend two weeks on that. So a whole class talking about who he is and what he did, and then how that changes us. That'll be in the fall. Don't have an exact date for it yet, but that is coming. So that's all I have. I'm going to... Yes. It is recorded. Yes. You can access it. 
online. You don't need a password or anything else. Um, it is on the Watermark Media page. If you go to watermark.org and click on Media, you see all the sermons there Todd's given, all of these resources. And in the search bar, if you just type Benchmark, all six of them will pop up. So you can go back and listen to it. There's no video, but the slides are also there. So you can follow along in the slides if you want to. Or if there's someone that you want to listen to this, um, you can shoot it to them and say, hey, check this out. Follow along with the slides because it's, honestly, it is more helpful if you follow along the slides than if you're listening to me, I think. Um, that's great. But that is all online for you to go back and listen to. Yeah, it'll be up there. I'm going to pray for us real quick. And then y'all can go and have a wonderful Wednesday evening. Lord God, thank you so much for this fire hydrant we've been drinking out of for the past six weeks. Thank you for your word, your special revelation to us so we can know you, know how to have a relationship with you and how to devote our lives wholly to you. Thank you that we can know how to study it and, can, and have access to that word every day of our lives. Lord, thank you for re- revealing yourself as the Trinity. And the, even though we can't understand it fully, we understand enough to know how revolutionary it is in our lives and how it changes our entire perceptions of this universe. God, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself, revealed your heart to us, revealed your attributes so that we can rightly and properly worship you and seek to be holy as you are holy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that aids us in that. We could not do it without your help. Thank you for your Son who has redeemed us, who has taken away our guilt and shame so that we can joyfully live in grace for you, point our lives to you and seek you. We pray all this in your Son's name by the power of your Spirit. Amen.